Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonobello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. At Kroger, we believe it takes the right team to bring you the freshest produce. That's why we partner with farmers who grow only the best. And that level of teamwork means better, fresher options time and time again. Working with farmers is what it takes to be fresh for everyone. Kroger, fresh for everyone. It's the big $10 sale. So mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. 911 emergency. Uh, this is Elijah. What? Elijah, you know Elijah? No, I don't. Uh, well, they know me down at the police station. Why does that keep beeping like that? It's on a recording. Oh, hey, a recording. That's great. You're not being recorded? Yes, sir. Hey, that's great. I want everybody to hear about me. Pretty soon I'll be world famous. That's the truth. Oh, I'm going to Jerusalem pretty soon. God's going to take me his way. A spaceship. UFO. You better believe it. They're everywhere. Everybody has seen Millions of people have seen them all around the world. Well, that's great. Yeah, that's right. And I've brought blessed the police officers and the scientists and the ordinary people that talk about these UFOs. So they do exist. And I know all about them. I'm a ufologist. I'm the number one scientist on this planet. I'm an authority on them. I'm a scientist. Okay. Yeah, you heard of Albert Einstein? No, but I'm going to have to go. I got other images. Well, I can explain it to you. It's problem with relativity. Well, I don't have time to hear Einstein. Well, I am very simple. But it's very simple. E does need to win T-square. That's right. Okay, Emmanuel Eco from the side coming the second time. That was anything like there was. Einstein was a Jew, and I'm a Jew, and very few people in the world understood him. That's right. I'm an engineer. I'm an electrician, a plumber, everything. I can do anything. Well, that's wonderful. I'm the world's greatest entertainer. Well, I'm, worth, I'm worth about $50 million a year. <laughs> Elijah, I gotta go now. Okay, okay, God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to the X-Zone, a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality. Now, here's your host, Rob McConnell.
And good evening, one and all, and welcome back to the X-Zone. My name is Rob McConnell, and for the next four hours, I'm your host and your guide as together we cross these time-space continuums that I call the X-Zone. It's a plus where people dare to believe and dare to be heard. It's a place where fact is fiction and fiction is reality, and we come to you Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern, right here on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, Talkstar Radio Network, Mutual Broadcast Network, and also on Simul Radio and Simul TV. If you'd like to send us an email, exone at exoneradiotv.com and on all social media sites, Exxon Radio TV. For the broadcast schedule of the Exxone Broadcast uh, Network and the many shows we have available for you, completely with our compliments, visit www.xzbn.net. That's www.xzbn.net. Exxon Nation, my first guest tonight is Dr. Bruce McAbee, and he is well-known throughout the UFO community. Um, you know, he is an author. He has been on many radio television shows uh, over the years. And uh, first of all, Bruce, welcome back to the Exxon. Always great talking to you. And uh, let our listeners know a little bit about you and how you got involved in ufology. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's always nice to be on your, on your program. Thank you, sir. Uh, I, I got involved in this uh, way back in the, in the 60s, although, of course, like anybody who was alive in the, uh, in the 50s had heard about flying saucers, mm-hmm. uh, extraterrestrials were, weren't quite necessarily being thought of at, the, at that time. But in any case, uh, there were massive sightings uh, on occasion, in particular around 1952, uh, the year 1952, when the Air Force collected the most sightings of, of any one year. Uh, and uh, as a 10-year-old at that time, I, my attention was caught by the movies, uh, uh, War of the Worlds, and uh, It Came from Outer Space, this, The Day the Earth Stood Still. These uh, sort of brought the subject to the fore, uh, but it was, it was nevertheless basically frowned upon, and the skeptics carried the day by arguing that uh, there, there was nothing to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, witnesses make mistakes. You can't trust witnesses. And uh, there is no hard evidence, they would say. Uh, we know now that there had been this situation with Roswell in 1947, in July of 1947. But the Roswell case, the Roswell crash case, uh, which offered out the possibility that there was hardware to prove one way or another whether these things were from, from the earth or from mm-hmm. some other place. Uh, they, they, the, that case gave the, oppor- the, the possibility, but it was bottled up by the government so fast that it only lasted one day. And then for 30 years, nobody heard about the Roswell case until 1979, or late 78. Anyway... Uh, the subject caught my interest as a, as a uh, teenager. But I didn't do anything about it because there wasn't anything I could do. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of anything that I could do about it. I just read some books. And uh, then when I went to American University in Washington, D.C., working for my Ph.D. in physics in, in the uh, late 60s, uh, uh, it was brought to the fore again, starting with a sightings in 1965 and 66 in the Midwest uh, that uh, caused a lot of interest. And uh, one 
case, one star series of sightings in Hillsdale, Michigan, uh, resulted in uh, the Air Force consultant, Dr. J. Allen Hynek, being called, asked by the uh, Project Blue Book people at the time to go to uh, Michigan and explain all these sightings. So he went there and explained everything to possibly uh, might have something to do with marsh, marsh gas, swamp gas. Mm -hmm. uh, this is in March uh, of the year. So uh, swamp gas is pretty, pretty thin frozen stuff, I guess. <laughs> anyway, uh, it caused a big uh, row in the press and that caused uh, Congress to direct the Air Force to support, to fund, whatever you want to call it, a, an investigation of the subject that was completely separate from Project Blue Book. And uh, uh, this, this directive to investigate sort of made it legitimate. You, for the first time, you could walk, talk about uh, flying saucers without having a bag over your head. Well, I was in college at that time in, uh, in Washington, D.C., where one of the major UFO organizations was headquartered, NICAP, National Investigating Committee on Aerial Phenomena. There is a new NICAP operating now, but it has nothing to do with the old one except in the name. Uh, so anyway, I, NICAP sent a couple of uh, their representatives to American University to give a talk. Uh, and uh, I went there and listened, and there were two guys talking about sightings that they had investigated. Mm -hmm. And I decided that... Uh, after it was all over, it sounded kind of interesting what they were talking about. And I had read a couple of books by that time. I was thinking there maybe might be something to it, but in any case, the only way to find out was to become active myself. And uh, so I went to the headquarters of NICAP in Washington, D.C., and did some volunteer work helping, helping, them, helping them straighten out their records and so on. But that also got me to uh, know, learn, to meet some of the local investigators. Each, many cities throughout the uh, United States and throughout the world had what were called uh, NICAP subcommittees. The subcommittee was the uh, group of people at a location that actually did investigations, and then they would send a report back to headquarters in Washington, D.C. In Washington, D.C., in the headquarters, there was numerous filing cabinets stacked stock with a file with sightings. I was told that at the time that I was there, they had about 10,000 sightings in their filing cabinets. Anyway, I got to go on some investigations in the uh, early early 70s, and uh, that convinced me that there was something going on here. What, what really was surprising was the uh, the explanations that were given for sightings. I could see that uh, newspaper people and uh, reporters and so on who are, who are confronted with these UFO sightings uh, might not be able to decide whether or not a sighting was a mistake or mm -hmm. or something real and some, something physical happened maybe there. Uh, well, let, or, me ask, uh, let me ask you, Dr. McAbee, have you yourself had a UFO encounter or a sighting? I had a sighting down in, in Florida in 1992. Uh, this is the area where Gulf Breeze sightings had occurred starting in 1987 and running through 
1997, practically. Uh, Gulf Breeze was, a, was the capital, the UFO capital of the world for a couple of years in 87, 88, 89, in that time frame. And uh, I went down there to see if I could see anything myself, and sure enough, uh, something appeared up in the sky, a ring of lights. I uh, have binoculars around my neck, and I whipped them up, and I could see this bright light resolved itself into eight, eight lights in a ring. Hmm. And uh, I didn't know what it was. I tried to, I had been prepared for something like that, and I had known that they had had numerous sightings. These are post-Ed Walters sightings, I should say, the uh, so-called Bubba series of sightings in the 1990 to 1992, where uh, a red light or a white light would move through the uh, air, go through the atmosphere at some altitude of maybe 1,000, 2,000 feet, and then uh, suddenly burst into white. It was a red, a red light going along. It would burst into white, and... Uh, white flashing at a high rate of speed. Uh, so anyway, I went down there to see what was what was going on, mm-hmm. and uh, I saw this ring of lights, and I didn't I didn't immediately call the guys with white coats and butterfly nets <laughs> to come and take me away, ho ho, because there were 30 other people there. Uh, they had uh, video cameras and uh, various devices and uh, still cameras, video cameras. I had a, a big ear, uh, a big a big ear acoustic telescope. This is one of these things where you can supposedly hear a whisper across the room or something like that. Right. And uh, I had reason that if, since these things had been reported as moving horizontally through the atmosphere, mm-hmm. they had to have some sort of sort of driving force. Right. Typical way it would be, for example. Uh, put it on a, uh, put some sort of a light on a small model airplane, fly a model airplane through. Uh, another way of support, supporting something could be by supporting from a balloon, a balloon and letting the wind blow the balloon. But these sightings, 172 sighting reports, were collected over a period of a couple of years, and. Many of the sightings had these things going in directions that had nothing to do with the wind, or there was no wind. Uh, there, there wasn't a, uh, nothing was ever found on the ground. If this, I thought this might be flares mm-hmm. attached to some sort of a device that could move at a reasonable clip. These things sometimes move more than, faster than 10 miles an hour. Right. Uh, and... Uh, Interesting. Please stand by, uh, Dr. Maccabee. You and I have to take our first break. And uh, Exonation, for more information on Dr. Maccabee, visit his website. And we're going to be giving you all the information on uh, Bruce's website. Well, let me ask you, Bruce, what is your website that you'd like us to uh, to tell our listeners about tonight? www.brumac, B-R-U-M-A-C, dot my site, M-I-T-E-E. M-Y-S-I-T-E dot com. Brumac dot mysite dot com. All right, Dr. Bruce McAbee, stand by. We'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as we continue here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. I'm Rob McConnell. Don't go away.
wasn't right I made love to Lynn last night When she gripped my hand I was feeling mighty fine But her fingers with mine would not intertwine When I bent down and gazed into her eyes There were bigger donuts and blacker than the sky and welcome back, everyone. Dr. Bruce Maccabee is my special guest. His website is www.brumac.com. My, I'm sorry, www.brumac, that's B-R-U-M-A-C dot mysite.com. Uh, Dr. Maccabee, wasn't there some, uh, some concern about the validity of the, of the sightings when it came to, um, uh, what was his name, Ed Walters, in, uh, in the Gulf Stream settings? Because wasn't he involved in real estate? And the stories or the reports went that they found a, a, a model of, uh, of a UFO in his attic. Is there any truth to that uh, story, sir? Uh, yeah, the, the, this, this, your version of it is somewhat garbled. Uh, but it's, very, it's really a very complicated uh, Side side discussion relative to the uh, the photos and the, the sightings and so mm-hmm. on. Uh, first of all, I'd like to just make a comment though that music that you just played that's number one hit in Andromeda. Oh, it is. Yes. Well, that's good. It's a good song, and uh, that's by uh, let me see uh, George McClure, <laughs> I believe. So anyway, uh, <clears throat> Ed Wallace started taking pictures uh, in November of. Uh, 1987, he was he was the sixth person on uh, November 11th, 1987. He was the sixth person to actually uh, see a UFO on that evening, and then after that, uh, he and other people started seeing sightings, mm-hmm. and that continued up through the spring of 1988, and and on and beyond. By 1990, there had been a couple of hundred sightings. By, by numerous people uh, in that area. But as far as Ed and his own particular situation is concerned, yeah. he, he uh, was sort of the, the, the main reason that people were interested in the Gulf Breeze sightings were his pictures, which were very clear. And uh, he, the, the sightings, these UFO shape, the sightings that occur showed this UFO shape uh, were in 87, 88 primarily. Then he had a, he published a book on his sightings in 1990. And uh, one of the uh, things in the book, well, showed pictures of this uh, UFO that he saw and took photos of. But he was living in a house, a particular street known as Silverthorne in uh, Gulf Breeze at the time he was taking the pictures in 87 and 88 then he moved out of that house into another house and his his what was then his former house uh, was sort of st- stood uh, alone and empty for a whole almost a whole year before somebody bought it the, the man who bought the house uh, wanted to install the, the water c- circulation for his Ice making refrigerator, and he had to find. He figured he had to find a valve that would allow him to. He assumed the valve was closed, and he would open the valve once he got the pipe fastened onto the uh, uh, refrigerator. 
part of the plumbing. So he was looking for a, a water pipe to fasten out of his refrigerator. Mm -hmm. He was looking, he, he knew that it must, the pipe must come out of the wall or something like that. He wasn't absolutely sure. But he, he, there are no, no basements in Gulf Reefs in Florida in general. No, no basement. So he knew that the water had to be coming from the attic. The attic, access to the attic was through the garage. There was a stairway from the garage up into the attic. And there was a, uh, the, the garage had been left open quite often so that the real estate agents could show the house if anybody wanted to see up in the attic. So anyway, the guy who bought the house goes up into the attic looking for a water pipe valve, looking for a valve to shut the water off that would go to the uh, uh, refrigerator. Mm -hmm. He could see there was a pipe, there was a, a small pipe sticking out from the wall, and the end of the pipe was crimped. There wasn't any valve, so he had to find a valve so he could turn the water off. Then he could saw off the crimped part of the pipe. And install the rest of the pipe to go to the refrigerator. That was his plan. So now he's up in the attic and he's looking between the floor joists, the vertical boards that uh, form the structure of the house. Between these, there was blown-in insulation. So he's puffing, puffing up insulation as he walks along, starting where he thinks he's above the refrigerator, and starts going along the the, uh, the gap, the, the uh, grooves, or what do you want to call it between the, uh, uh, the spaces between the floor joists. Uh, he's, he's going along, and all of a sudden, he up pops this model uh, object, and he thinks, he doesn't, he doesn't think much of it. He doesn't think much about it. He's looking for a, for a pipe to shut off the water. Mm -hmm. he, he, he doesn't find any valve at all, so he... Uh, uh, climbs back down into the garage, puts the model on a shelf, and goes about his business. Now, this is something like December or January of uh, 1990. He uh, pays no attention to the model. He calls up Ed to find out where the, sh where the shutoff valve is, and Ed tells him that the only shutoff valve is out in the place in the, in the lawn. There's no, there aren't any individual valves for the uh, various piping in the house. So he uh, turns the water off and saws off the crimp on the pipe and uh, puts on a uh, puts on a valve and gets himself all set up, ready to go. And that's that's that. Then a few weeks later, he gets a visit from a uh, t uh, newspaper reporter, and the newspaper reporter asked uh, this guy, "Have you seen any UFOs?" Now they're standing at the doorstep of Ed's house where he had taken some pictures of UFOs. So the, uh, <clears throat> the reporter asked, man, have you seen any UFOs? And the guy says, no. Well, have you seen any pictures of UFOs lying around? And the guy says, no. Well, have you found any models? And the guy says, oh, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a setup to me. In any case, they found this model. The photos that Ed took, not, not. There's no one photo which is of this model. Uh, the model is like what Ed uh, took photos of, but it's not exactly the same. <clears throat> so it looks like the model itself was a hoax. In, in any case, mm -hmm. I was very familiar with the whole series of events. Well, let me ask. Let me ask you, Doctor Maccabee. Why do you think that the ETs or uh, 
if they are from another place in the universe, why would they be interested in Gulf Breeze? I suspect they're more interested in some person, uh, either that or just accidentally end up somewhere. Virtually every place on the Earth has had sightings. But it, but isn't there a isn't there a major military base near Gulf Breeze? An Air Force like base. An Air Force base is uh, ten or twenty miles east, I guess. Yeah. Is is it possible that it was a military operation that people were were witnessing, or even a Pegasus launch? Because the Kennedy Space Center, uh, according to the information that we found, uh, used a track when they were when they were launching Pegasus vehicles that could be seen from from Gulf Breeze. A, a track? I don't know what you mean. A flight pattern. A path, the pathway to the atmosphere. Yeah, a, a flight path. Because a, because a Pegasus vehicle was launched. Yeah, well, you know, that thing would, if, it, if you could see it, if you could see the, uh, uh, if you could see the combusting material out the back end, mm -hmm. it would just go in a curved arc uh, in some direction and burn out. It would be a, a continuous motion. It wouldn't hover in one place like I these see. things are reported to do. And... Uh, no, it would be so far away from people that it wouldn't appear to be anything big. Okay. It would just be a bright spot. So what happened with all the sightings in Gulf Breeze? Did they stop as suddenly as they began? They sort of dwindled off. First of all, you had the, the first sightings, November, starting in November 1987 and going through 1988, mm -hmm. where you've got several, several dozen, dozen witnesses to things happening including several witnesses who said they saw exactly the same thing that appears in Ed's photos. And then uh, the sighting rate dropped off somewhat for about a year. And uh, then in 1989, it began to come back again. And starting in 19, November of 1990, I guess it was, they had these so-called Bubba sightings. They gave this red light a nickname, Bubba, and uh, it became so regular that there was a group of people down there who went out virtually every night for a couple of years to see what could be seen. And they had uh, good optics, telescopes, uh, binoculars, uh, good quality video cameras. And mm -hmm. uh, they, you would have multiple, multiple witness sightings. One, one sighting had a uh, hundred people. There were so many sightings down there that uh, news news networks sent their people to go and videotape anything and interview witnesses in Gulf Breeze. So, uh, something I can't understand about the UFO sightings at night: were any of these sightings in Gulf Breeze ever daylight sightings? Yeah, there were some daylight sightings uh, <clears throat> and evening sightings where it's a thing that's silhouetted against a, a glowing sky, mm -hmm. for example. But there were numerous multiple witness sightings. They also, a number of people saw this blue beam that Ed talked about. I noticed that blue seems to be a color uh, that... Uh, 
uh, UFOs uh, uh, will use for, for, for whatever reason. Blue is not a color for human-type aviation transport vehicles. In other words, you won't find blue on any airplanes. No, no, you won't. But I, I've always wondered if these, if these craft are from another planet, let's say, why would they leave lights on so that Earthlings could identify them if, in fact, they wanted to say, stay uh, hidden? Why would they make themselves known at night? <clears throat> well, I presume they don't want to make themselves hidden. They're, they're probably trying to uh, acclimatize uh, to make make it accustomed to being able to look up and see something like that. Um, we have plenty of plenty of situations where uh, a UFO could have avoided being seen if it had gone behind a tree or behind a hill or something like that, but instead. It comes out where anybody can see it. You know, there's uh, probably several hundred thousand sightings over the last 70 years. All right, Doc. Which involve mm -hmm. objects, uh, lights at night, or structured objects during the daytime. All right, Dr. McAbee, stand by. Uh, we have to take our news break at the bottom of the hour. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about the press release that you issued in January. Um, that basically uh, the, the uh, release heading reads, Navy physicist, retired Dr. Bruce McAbee, predicts that the U.S. Navy's Special Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, UAP Task Force, UAPTF, will confirm what civilian investigators have long suspected. Some UAP are vehicles controlled by non-human intelligences. And we'll talk to Dr. Bruce McAbee about this on the other side of this commercial break with the news as the Exxon continues here from our broadcast center and studios in uh, Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Now, if you'd like to send me an email, pro, con, are you a skeptic or are you a believer? WW, uh, oops. That's the website. Let's try the email address this time, exxon at exxonradiotv.com. We'll be back on the other side of this break. Don't go away. Back everyone. This is the Exxon. I'm Rob McConnell. Our guest is Dr. Bruce McAbee. And if you'd like to visit uh, Dr. McAbee's website, www.brumac, that's B-R-U-M-A-C dot mysite.com. Uh, as I was saying, uh, Dr. McAbee issued this uh, press release that is, uh, that is headlined, Navy physicist retired Dr. Bruce McAbee 
predicts that the U.S. Navy's Special Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, that's UAP Task Force, that's UAPTF, will confirm what civilian investigators have long suspected. Some UAP are vehicles controlled by non-human intelligences. Tell me about your reasoning why you issued this press release. Well, first of all, let me say NHI, non-human intelligence, is, a, is used to, to avoid being stuck with ET or time travelers or space travelers mm-hmm. or, or whatever. The, the, the big thing is that it's <clears throat> not human intelligences that are in, in control of whatever it is here uh, is being reported. Uh, these uh, this uh, UAPTA task force uh, <clears throat> and, pre- and its predecessor over the last several years have gone public with what they call a bunch of observables, the characteristics of these unknowns that set them apart from other things, like, for example, extreme acceleration, uh, being able to hover in one position with no apparent means of support. A uh, helicopter hovers in one position mm-hmm. because the blades force air, force air downwards at such a speed that it creates an upward lift. Well, uh, with UFOs hovering, there's no big, no big propellers blowing air down. The only thing people can think of is maybe some some sort of anti gravity, but we don't know how to do that. Anyway, these observables that they talk about, uh, <clears throat> being able to travel at extremely high speeds and not make any sound, uh, tra- transfer from one medium to another, like go from water, air into water, and vice versa. Not have any shape that's recognizable the typical t-shape of a uh, airplane is built that way to gain support under the wings and carry the carry the wings and the fuselage upwards uh, there's no control surfaces nothing nothing that you can say is going to support this object and yet it hovers there and then all of a sudden it takes off so fast that it seems to disappear well, they, the uh, Louis Elizondo and the other people who have been promoting the uh, uh, recent, relatively, relatively recent sightings by the Navy, mm-hmm. like the, the Tic Tac sighting and so on, uh, in 2004, which was uh, first publicized in 2017, uh, those observables. These these people are presenting them as if they were something just was just recently discovered. They don't tell you what the history is. If you look back in uh, in history, you can go almost back to the beginning. There's a, a document found in the FBI file, which was a, a new uh, Air Force generated file, an Air Force generated document that wasn't found in the Project Blue Book for some reason or other. And it was not found in the Project Blue Book file, which is the Air Force intelligence file devoted to tra- flying saucer investigations. Uh, this one page listed all the observables, uh, except for the transferring from one, one medium to another. All the other observables were listed in this one document that was dated July 1947. So the... Uh, the people pre- talking about the present 
Navy sightings and so on, the observables that they're talking about, as if they had just discovered them, mm-hmm. were known 70-some years ago. Well, July 1947, wasn't that uh, the uh, the uh, time of the Kenneth Arnold sighting as well as the alleged events in Roswell, New Mexico? Yes, <clears throat> 1947. Kenneth Arnold's sighting was in was June 24, 1947. Mm-hmm. And he uh, told his friends at the airport that he saw these strange objects and he thought they were some new development of the Air Force. And he told the press... He, he, he was worried that if, if these weren't ours, if they were Russian, we could be in a deep doo-doo if the Russians could travel the way these things did. He, he clocked them at 1,700 miles an hour. Anyway. Uh, now, now I, I, would just like to, I would just like to clarify something here. When, we say, when, when, when you say that Kenneth Arnold clocked, he physically did not follow. He just made an estimation based on from play, uh, from point A to point B and the time it took. He had a clock yes, on his dashboard. Right. And he timed when they went went past Mount Rainier. He was uh, about 20-some miles uh, southwest of Mount Rainier. So he was looking northeast. As these objects, he first saw them to the north to his left. He was flying eastward. He first saw them flying southward in such a way they're going to go between him and Mount Rainier. He could see that, that he could see that happening. And he knew that farther south was Mount Adams that he could see off in the distance. These are volcanoes in the state of Washington. And he when, when he picked one of them, the last one, or the first one, I forget. Uh, and when it went past Mount Rainier, he, he looked at his clock and it said 3 o'clock. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he had a sweep hand, a second sweep hand, sweep second hand on his clock. And he watched the object go southward, all these nine, nine objects he saw going southward uh, at a high speed. And when they passed Mount Adams, he looked at his clock, and it was 102 seconds. And then it was a distance of about 50 miles. It works out to about 1,700 miles an hour. Uh, during the time that he saw them about three minutes. And by the way, I wrote a book called Three Minutes in June based on the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which lasted three minutes. Right. Um, were there any military or civilian air uh, radar tracks that could confirm the sighting, or were there any ground witnesses that also could confirm the sighting that, that Arnold uh, reported? Well, there was one very important uh, ground witness let me say that um, at first that uh, I'm not aware of any any radar. Uh, there were other people in the area who had sightings mm-hmm. at the same time. He's made national. He's made local news and then national news because he was a, a pilot with several thousand hours of experience and uh, generally generally solid solid old gentleman. I guess you could say mm-hmm. they they would b- believe him, but. Uh, uh, okay, so where there is, you know, what kind of evidence? I mean, besides Arnold. Oh, I forgot that yeah. this this other person, the one other really important person involved in Kenneth Arnold's sighting, was a prospector by the name of Fred Johnson, who was who wrote a letter to the uh, Air Force 
saying he had been on the side of Mount Adams at an altitude of 5,000 feet prospecting when these things went overhead and he saw five or four or five of them as they uh, said the last he saw of them they were banking upwards into a cloud mm -hmm. disappearing but he noticed as they were going over that his compass needle was wobbling back and forth so and he wrote this all in a letter to the Air Force the Air Force subsequently called up the FBI and said well you go and talk to this guy so the FBI interviewed him and they gave him, gave him a good bill of health. <clears throat> so there's the Air Force interview and the FBI interview telling the experience of Fred Johnson with his uh, the, the first physical effect case having to do with uh, uh, the wobbling of his compass. There's some sort of a magnetic field going along with these objects. How far, you know, what was the distance between the prospector and the craft? Was that ever determined? Probably about a thousand feet. The, the objects were the objects were mm -hmm. flying. Well, they could have they could have been at any altitude, but they had been at Kenneth Arnold's location. They had been about nine thousand feet up. As, uh, as a prospector, is there any possibility that? The prospector just happened to be at the place and time where there was some magnetic rock that was causing the magnetic anomaly, that it had nothing to do with whatever he saw in the sky. Magnetic rock, did you yeah. say? Mm -hmm. uh, I think he would have known that because he was using his compass to tell him where, tell him what was in the, what direction was north. <clears throat> if there, uh, first of all, there aren't. I don't know if there are any magnet many if there are magnetic rocks lying around other than meteors. Mm -hmm. There's some types of meteors that are magnetic. Right. Iron, iron meteorites. Uh, I would say you basically have to accept accept Fred Johnson's testimony as written. Why? Why would we have to accept it? Why? Why isn't it questioned? Well, I, you, you do question it at first. You analyze, analyze it the same way as you analyze Kenneth Arnold's sighting. Mm -hmm. I've done all this analysis and put it in, in, in my book. I invite anybody to read how this whole subject sort of started off with a bang in 1947. Do you think there's a connection between the Kenneth Arnold sighting and what happened in Roswell? <clears throat> well, certainly no direct connection. Uh, whatever happened in Roswell appears to have been primarily this explosion, explosion of a craft uh, that resulted in pieces of stuff spread over sizable areas of, of the uh, of the area north uh, north west northwest of Roswell. Why are there some investigators who have investigated the Roswell incident who talk about two craft involved? Well, this goes back to uh, uh, the initial investigation of the Roswell case when the investigation began in late 1978 and 79 when uh, Stan Friedman and Bill Moore uh, began interviewing witnesses. This case had been ignored 
for 30 years by the time 1979 rolled around. And uh, it was like discovering something new, even though it was very old. Uh, so I'm gonna, we're going to talk more about this when we come back from this commercial break, because there seems to be a lot of controversy now as to the validity of witnesses, as to what really happened, including the credibility of Jesse Marcel and Mark Brazel. We'll talk about that when we come back from this commercial break. An explanation if you'd like to get more information about our guest this hour, Dr. Bruce McAbee, visit his website at www.brumac, that's B-R-U-M-A-C, dot mysite.com. That's www.brumac.mysite.com. And we'll be back on the other side of this break as we wrap up this hour here in the X-Zone from our broadcast center and studios in Crystal Beach, Ontario, Canada. Don't forget, you can always find out what's happening on the X-Zone broadcast network at www.xzbn.net. And for all the programs that we have available for you on the X-Zone TV channel, which is uh, which is exclusive to our friends at SimulTV, www.simultv.com. I'm Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon. Don't go away. from Roswell where the aliens have been and if you ask the feds the cause well they'll only lie again now I'm hunted by the gumshoes and I'm wanted by the cops cause they think that I might be the guy making circles in the crops and I know that there's a conspiracy from the voices in my head Elvis lives, that's clear to me, it's McCartney who is dead. And if the Mars man should come again and take me, I will go. I will take a trip on their rocket ship. God bless the UFO. Give JFK this message, it's the Cuban army's fault. And I know that Dave Koresh is alive inside a vault. We've seen reports in papers of a guy who knows about a car that runs on chewing gum, but the Arabs rubbed him out. And we loudly warned that America is badly unprepared. With the Cold War through, we need something new that can get you good and scared. You wonder just who warning you of conspiracies today. We're the ones who fill the rumor mill. We are the CIA. And welcome back. Dr. Bruce McAbee is our guest this hour. His website is, are you ready, Exonation? I'm going to give it to you one more time. www.brumac.mysite.com 
Com. You know, when it comes to the Roswell incident, there seems to be a lot of controversy now. The, uh, the credibility of certain witnesses uh, is being questioned by Roswell longtime investigators. And one of the problems I have with the entire Roswell crash and the retrieval of, of the debris from the debris field is, is that when Jesse Marcel went to the ranch, picked up the debris, was on his way back to the base, what does he do instead of taking it from point A to point B like any, any law enforcement officer or investigator or any special investigator within the military that I've known, they would take it right back to the base. But what does Jesse Marcel do? He stops at his house and lets his son handle this evidence. Now, to me, that means anything to do with the Roswell case, any credibility is gone. Why has this this part of the story always been gleamed over? Well, I don't know that it's been gleamed over because it was definitely part of the history. Uh, it was Jesse Marcel who told us about mm-hmm. taking it to his house and putting, trying to fit some pieces together and so on so that his, his son uh, saw it and uh, was able to uh, describe things many years later but, after his father had died. But doesn't that... To me, that makes no sense at all. As, as a former police investigator who's well aware of the rules of evidence and the chain of custody, what he did broke it, which means the entire case is tainted, which means it has no validity, no credibility. And his actions certainly don't put him in the light of a credible, credible member of the armed forces and a member of the intelligence community. You just don't do that. Well, uh, the, maybe... Maybe you do under under certain circumstances. You never do. In the case in the Roswell case, I have not been a uh, Roswell case investigator because although I tended to believe Jesse Marcel's testimony, uh, I uh, figured the Roswell case, unlike most of them, mm-hmm. uh, we know is a, in principle there's a possibility of absolutely proving something it was something was real. The possibility is there. Right, the but possibility is there. But they're not going to let you get to it to find out. I mean, if, the, if, if the, it was pieces of a balloon, mm-hmm. they probably would have thrown it away. It's not likely they would have hung on to it. Uh, and uh, Jesse Marcel, that part of the story presumably would have been a, completely, a complete fabrication because there's no reason to take a balloon uh, into his house and, and play with it. Well, there, in my opinion... There was no need for him to even stop at his house with evidence. He broke, you know, he broke every chain. He broke every rule when he did that. So how so can we get... Boy, the question is, is the stuff that he brought, is that, is that all fabrication? He didn't have anything at all? Did he make up the whole story? Well, here's another question. If he brought it home, and if he was such an intelligence officer, he should have or could have had access to a camera. And if he would have taken a photograph with his son holding any of this material, all right, that's one scenario. But he took no photos. He didn't take any photos at the scene. He didn't take any photos at his house. Why not? An well, intelligence I, officer? I, that, don't, I, I don't know why yeah. not. It's a bit late for us to sit here and speculate. Well, uh, why is it? But why is it late for us to speculate on that, Dr. McAbee, when 
the UFO community expects us to, to just accept the story as it is told. And yet when people speculate and ask questions that, that somehow point to a lack of credibility of, of the UFO uh, incident or whatever it was, you know, that's shunned, that's shunned at by the UFO community. I don't understand the dual standard here, sir. Well, certainly the, uh, the UFO community has attempted to find out what the truth is by interviewing <clears throat> as many people who have been involved with it as possible and trying to put a, put a story together. As I was saying, I, as far as I'm concerned, I was never a Roswell investigator because I realized that although in principle there is hard, hard evidence there somewhere, yeah. in practice it doesn't do us any good as, uh, because we're not, we have no access to the, to the stuff. So I concentrated my time on, in the UFO investigation on analyzing things like photo cases, uh, other physical effects, just plain good solid investigation and trying to see if there's any cases that absolutely cannot right. be explained. In uh, that press your... release that you referred to, mm-hmm. I don't know if you read the whole thing or not, but you'll see that there's a, an incident in there that I grabbed onto, which is part documented part of a uh, series of incidents uh, that occurred in New Zealand on December 31st, 1978. These famous New Zealand sightings. Uh, did, uh, there's a lot of other selling stuff that goes along with it, uh, what I put into that re- into that press release. Mm-hmm. But in the press release, I put uh, the, the story of the actions of these radar targets, which shouldn't have been there, and the one in particular which traveled along with the airplane and got so close to the airplane that the ground radar couldn't separate the radar target of the unknown from the radar target of the uh, airplane. And uh, I argue that what that target did is, uh, could be considered evidence of non-human intelligence. It was uh... okay. We're lo- we're looking back at nineteen uh, nineteen seventy eight for that case, right? Yes. During your your tenure as as a as a as an analyst, when it comes to UFOs, whether it be picture or ground mark evidence or so on. Have you yourself ever had any crash debris that you've had the opportunity of, of investigating or, or analyzing? No. I never had any hardware. No way. Why do you think here we are, for example, uh, let's just take the date going back to 1947, 70 some odd years, right? And, and still we're no further ahead. Well, I've asked that question, too, with respect to the uh, UAP task force. Yeah. They, they talk about these observables as if they had just been, they had just discovered them. I say they were already known way back in 1947. So I asked the question, have we really learned anything? And what answer do you get, sir? Well, I think we've learned something, but not as much as we would hope after 70 years of investigation. Is it, is it possible that we're looking for something that really isn't there? Like, you know, is it, is it possible that all the sightings that have been seen, whether it's Kenneth Arnold, whether it's whatever happened at Roswell, I agree with you, sir, something did happen there. I'm not 100% sure it has anything to do with UFOs, though. Or the Gulf Breeze, 
something did happen. But how can we say without any hesitation that they were not from this planet, that they had nothing to do with black operations, secret projects, military uh, military projects, military experimental aircraft, NASA's aircraft, experimental uh, aircraft. How do we know? How can we say with all certainty? And why should we speculate that it has anything to do with extraterrestrials? Uh, well, is that's why I use the term NHI, non-human intelligence. I don't know whether they're extraterrestrial, ultra-terrestrial, intra-terrestrial, uh, or what. Figments of everybody's ima mm -hmm. imagination. Uh, we know that they, they have been reported to uh, affect uh, their surroundings. I, re I recall in the 1950s a, a setting report of a hunter who was out in the mountains with a, sh a shotgun or a rifle and whatever, and walking along in, in between the trees, and he notices this big object that's like following him along, mm -hmm. and he fired his rifle at it, and he heard the bullet go careening off. I don't, I don't know if you ever heard a bullet go flying off of some object like a ricochet. I sure have. So anyway, he heard it go careening off, which to him meant that this object was solid. Okay, so we have hearsay evidence of something that happened without any physical evidence to substantiate the proof, right? Right. With today's technology, with, the, with, the, with the New Zealand sightings, though, it was nice. It was quote nice unquote mm -hmm. to have lots of backup. You have multiple witnesses. You got radar on the ground, radar on the airplane. You got a color movie film right. uh, of the object lighted uh, moving around. Uh, and a tape recording made on the airplane by a, a news reporter, and a tape recording made at the Wellington Air, air, tra air tra Traffic, the Wellington Radar mm -hmm. Station, a, a tape recording there, so you could uh, sort of like put the, put the sighting history together With accurately based on the, the time timings of the uh, uh, time of the events recorded on the uh, Wellington. With, with everybody today having high-definition cameras in their cell phones, and everyone has a cell phone, how come there has not been that smoking gun photo that's been taken? It seems that as technology Im improved, UFO photos and videos declined. Well, of course, it doesn't take you all about one minute to go onto the net to find something that's claimed to be a UFO, mm -hmm. which turned up in somebody's phone, cell phone camera. Yeah. So, and then it, what you find is that immediately a million people hop onto that one sighting and offer their million and one explanations for it. Uh, something has to be pretty damn, pretty damn solid to last through uh, the, uh, the grilling that you get on the internet, uh, where almost any explanation is allowed or considered, uh, including explanations that make no sense. Well, you know, I could say the same thing about the UFO community with their comments and a lot of things that they say make no sense to a lot of us either. But I want to thank you so much, Dr. Maccabee, for joining us tonight and Exonation. As I said, if you'd like to find out more about Dr. Bruce Maccabee, visit his website at www.brumac.mysite.com. That's www.brumac.com. 
www.mysite.com. Uh, listen, no secret explanation. I don't think there was anything to do with extraterrestrials in Roswell, New Mexico. And if there was, Jesse Marcel, who is hailed by a hero within the UFO community, shot himself in the foot and discredited anything to do with Roswell. As soon as he left point A, instead of going right back to the Air Force Base, putting everything that he collected under lock and key, maintained the, the chain of evidence, when he brought it home and let his kid play with it or showed it to his child, come on, that is way out of line for even a cook in the Army the Air Force or the Navy, let alone a so-called intelligence officer. Now that's a great oxymoron. Don't go away. I'll be back after this break. <laughs> 